Well, we have a flamboyant sermon title that I made up. Uh, Brian, I'm known for making up long, elaborate essay questions, and I think making up uh, long, elaborate sermon titles is also a lot of fun. In fact, once I got the title made up, I felt like I didn't have to do much work on the rest of the sermon. And uh, this morning as we pulled up to church, I told Sam and Cliff that about half of the examples in the sermon were from their lives, and they said they hadn't signed any waiver for that, so a lot of the sermon disappeared at that moment anyway, but I'll do as best I can. Uh, What I'd like to do is summarize uh, some of the theology that Gary and Lewis have been teaching in Romans 1 through 8 with a particular idea of uh, looking at at even more practical implications of that theology, uh, of issues like how do we accept God's grace? And how does that grace in practical ways empower us in our daily lives, free us and empower us? Uh, We're clearly called to work, to do good works, to uh, do the work of obeying God, following his word and the promptings of his spirit, how do grace and, and the works we do on the far side of receiving God's grace, how do those things fit together in practical ways in our daily walk with Christ? Uh, I'd like to talk about what I think Romans is teaching about that connection and uh, give some examples actually from my own personal life about how that connection has worked for me. First, of all, I want to clarify that I think Paul is writing to, um, I want to clarify the two audiences that I think Paul is writing uh, uh, to. He, he refers to both Roman Gentiles and, and Roman Jews. Uh, and I did, I actually did research in my dissertation on the philosophy of Stoicism because uh, Southern novelist Walker Percy believed that the Southern gentleman's code of honor was heavily influenced by Stoicism. And so I, I did research on Stoicism going all the way back to classical times. And one of the things that a number of intellectual historians believe is that in the first century AD, when Ro- the book of Romans and the other books of the New Testament were being written, the predominant worldview or I- ethic in, in Rome, particularly among the leaders and the ruling classes, was Stoicism. And So when Paul is talking to the Gentiles in Romans, there's a good chance that he's talking to Stoics. And the Stoics believed in four cardinal virtues, wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance, or self-control. And they also believed that man's rational mind and his will were enough to get him to consistent practice of those virtues. That if a man simply exerted his reason and his will sufficiently, he could become the stoic wise man, uh, the person who was consistently virtuous. The stoics didn't believe in a personal God. They believed in a divine spirit that in a pantheistic sort of way pervaded the whole universe, a spirit of reason that they called the logos, interestingly. Uh, But it it was a force more than than a person. And, And while the individual stoic was trying to ally himself with the, 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 that rational force in, in practicing his virtue, he didn't, he didn't get personal help from the Logos. It was, it was all up to him. Stoics were left to attempt moral perfection on their own with little or no outside help. 
And uh, in order to achieve that perfection, to some extent, Stoics contorted themselves, distorted their, their humanity by suppressing emotion. One of the vaunted Stoic uh, attitudes was, was apatheia or apathy, an absence or a suppression of emotion because they believed that emotion came from an inferior part of the soul and that it had a tendency to take over reason and, and therefore that they had to be very suspicious of almost any, any strong emotion. And, and you get Stoic philosophers saying some, some troubling things, some things that don't sound very psychologically healthy. Uh, Epictetus, the Roman philosopher Epictetus writes, quote, at the times when you are delighted with a thing, place before yourself the contrary appearances. What harm is it while you are kissing your child to say with a lisping voice, tomorrow you will die? And to a friend also, tomorrow you will go away, or I shall, and never shall we see one another again. <clears throat> there was a sense that you had to be so careful about emotions that you couldn't let yourself get too attached, even, even to the people around you who were closest to you. Uh, living with the Stoic involved bearing terrible personal burdens. Uh, and that's one of the things that Walker Percy highlights in his fiction. And it's something that I, I feel like I, I experienced in my own life, as I'll, I'll talk about a little later. But Paul could not be clear in asserting in Romans that no exertion of the human intellect or will has ever been capable of producing righteousness. Paul's listing of the natural pagan human perversions in Romans 1, homosexuality, wickedness, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance, disobedience to parents, lack of love, lack of understanding, and untrustworthiness provided concrete examples of human failures to live up to the Stoic standards of wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Uh, and the Stoics in Rome, when Paul was writing, had already seen examples of that in some of the Roman emperors. And Caligula, who, who was sexually perverse and murdered, had his own mother murdered in, uh, in, in the crazy... Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Caligula was the crazy materialistic emperor, and it was Nero who had his own mother murdered and committed suicide. So the Romans had already seen, seen some failures in Stoic, Stoic ideals and Stoic philosophy close up. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, clearly uh, applies to all who, like the Stoics among the Roman Gentiles, were seeking to make themselves righteous through relying on their own strengths and resources. Paul's other audience, obviously, is the Jews in Rome. And his main attack on the Jews, it seems to me, is on their pride in their being chosen to possess special knowledge of God's law as recorded in the Old Testament. Paul's address to them in Romans 2, 17-20 begins with this summary of their prideful sense of exclusive knowledge of the true God in his moral spiritual law. Paul begins in verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed in the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, 
if the irony that is dripping off those words is not clear by this point, Paul will make it clear in the succeeding sentences when he talks about how they have failed to keep that law that they say they are so privileged to know. So the, the Jews' emphasis on their special exclusive knowledge of God and his moral laws uh, is another thing that comes under condemnation as a human attempt to uh, follow God faithfully that, that fails. Um, it's uh, interesting that, uh, that at times in the New Testament, the Jews are actually associated, Jewishness is associated, or Judaism, is associated with Gnosticism, uh, the heresy of salvation through special spiritual knowledge. Uh, the heretics who were besetting the Colossians, uh, it's, it's clear, were, had Gnostic tendencies, you're saved by special spiritual knowledge apart from Christ, but they also had, had legalistic Jewish tendencies. They were ascetical. They, they had certain moral prescriptions that everybody was supposed to follow. Uh, the, 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 the Jews that Paul is attacking in Romans had clearly had tendencies toward Gnosticism. We, we know God's word. We know God's law, and, and that's enough. And of, of course, uh, Paul was very aware from the history of his own life that even when the Jews did make an effort to keep God's law, to actually do it, not just know it, that attempt often ended in, in uh, empty legalism, uh, lack of love, even a murderous lack of love. Um, Paul uses the miserable history of the Jews' disobedience in Romans 2 as a parallel to the miserable history of pagan humankind in Romans 1, quoting from several different psalms in Romans 3, 10 through 18, to summarize the abysmal moral failure of both groups. Quote, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Um, it just struck me as I was thinking about these two audiences that there are very likely a number of people in our own congregation who have some of these tendencies uh, of the Stoics and the Jews. Uh, Signal Mountain people and even Bryan College professors uh, have often gotten to where they are in part by being especially determined folk, people who set great store by having exceptional willpower and self-discipline. Some of our lives may even reflect the same distortions that can be seen in the Stoics. Some of us, I think, are suspicious of emotions. Uh, part of the price of our ethos of self-discipline is that we're a bit afraid to let down and fully enjoy everything, anything. If we have too much fun, we may lose the edge that enables us to have successful careers, orderly homes, and orderly children. Uh, Sometimes we may even be puzzled that our ethos of unending effort and emotional inhibition isn't attractive to those children. That living in a society of, uh, that emphasizes pleasure and self-indulgence, uh, our children are not uh, buying into our stoic self-discipline and uh, are, are, are um, becoming disorderly in ways that threaten our, our self-esteem and our way of life. Uh, I know that when I was a high schooler uh, at, at Baylor in Chattanooga, 
I um, was a very insecure kid, and, but I was good at school, and, and I exercised a kind of stoic willpower to make sure that I stayed good at school. Uh, I uh, can remember in eighth grade going home and studying about eight hours for a final exam in, in science the next day. Uh, when I studied, I would sit at a, in a wooden chair, and I would sit up, and I wouldn't let myself chew gum or listen to music. And I would say, you cannot get up until you have finished these calculus problems. You know, I, I made uh, uh, statements like that all the time. I was constantly goading myself and pushing myself. And you know, that self-discipline may have made me good at school, but it didn't, it didn't solve the problem of my sexual fantasy and lust. It didn't enable me to get control of that. Uh, and, and the burdens that it placed on me as I was shoving my insecurities down and dealing with them only through the self-discipline ultimately caused me to go into a serious clinical depression in my second year of college and dropping out of school for a while. And that seemed like the end of my life because that school had been, been uh, the way I compensated for everything and that stoic drive to succeed. Um, so the stoic way doesn't work. But I suspect that a number of us also possess some of the complacency and pride of the Jews. Because as members of a Bible church where the scriptures are taught in depth, we can become self-satisfied about our knowledge of, of God and his word. Uh, we may come away from a Sunday service and sermon feeling really edified by our understanding of a complex point of biblical history or language or theology. And, and even though there is application, even in the sermon, uh, we, we still see no contradiction in the fact that, that the knowledge we've gained doesn't make us better husbands, even on the way home in the car, or better, or more loving to our wives, or wives who are more respectful to our, their husbands, or parents who are more firm and consistent in disciplining children, and at the same time, more patient and understanding of them, patient with and understanding of them, people more peaceful about the things that threaten us, more concerned about those who don't know the Lord, or do know him, but are harming themselves and others by their failure to walk with him. You know, our, our, our knowledge, it's awfully easy to become complacent about biblical knowledge that is not really making much difference in the way we live, particularly behind closed doors. Uh, so I would say that uh, some of us could be like those, those uh, Jews. Um, in our quiet moments, we may have an uneasy sense that our Christianity contains too much theory, and not enough reality. I know I, I grew up in a church that I think taught the Bible pretty well in a lot of ways. But I, I seldom saw it make a difference in how a husband treated his wife, or a wife or husband, or how people did business, or how people parented their children, or how people reacted when they were under stress. Um, uh, and that is a serious gap and knowledge doesn't lead to action. Knowledge of God's truth isn't complete unless it's changing our lives. It's not fulfilled until it's incarnated. Uh, so Paul is, is bringing up a serious problem. The good news in Romans uh, about a righteousness that comes by God's grace 
through faith and not by our moral efforts takes a tremendous burden off of us Stoics and can lead us hypocritical or legalistic Jews who are so unsuccessful and fruitfully and winsomely applying our, our scriptural knowledge to authentically righteous behavior. Romans 8.2 says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Um, Romans uh, 6.23 assures Stoic legalists that the free gift of God is eternal life. As Stoics, we can stop contorting ourselves, denying our emotions, making ourselves miserable with isolated moral effort. As Romans 3.24 says, we are already justified as a gift from God. In God's eyes, we are as innocent as his son Jesus in terms of any punishment or condemnation. If you really think about that and meditate about that, it, it, it is a pretty powerful truth. If, if we're living that truth out, then, then what it does is it frees us to make a new start every day, every minute. Uh, we do not have to be paralyzed by guilt about how we failed in the past with our spouses or our children or our friends or our a Bible study or whatever it is that bothers us, our sexual, our yielding to, to sexual temptation, whatever, uh, God's carte blanche forgiveness of us, unconditional forgiveness, gives us a place where we can start anew. Uh, the one person in the universe who has the right to condemn me, everybody else, nobody else has the right. You've got your own problems. You've got your own sins to worry about. What do you have to do messing with mine? Uh, the one person who has no sin and has a right to condemn me has declared me not guilty. Uh, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Paul asks in Romans 8, 33-34. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of us? who also intercedes for us. The only person who can be our prosecutor before a holy God has become our defense attorney, our constant advocate. Uh, so we, um, we do not have to make ourselves righteous. Uh, we can freely accept righteousness as a gift. And it's a gift that cannot be taken away. It's ours forever. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks in Romans 8, 35. And the obvious answer is no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Um, this grace does not mean that we lose the satisfaction of working hard to obey and follow Christ. There's a place for good works a striving successfully to please God. But that striving, that working, come on the far side of his grace if they're to be productive, if they're to be consistent with God's plan. Um, Romans 6.19 does say we're to do good works. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Being a slave of righteousness requires conscious, continuous effort. To obey God's word. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We're not passive. We're not just dead meat laid on the altar. We put ourselves on the altar. 
That requires activity. And Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world. Swimming against the current of our culture requires conscious, active obedience to God. So there's plenty of room for good works on the far side of grace. In fact, the rest of Romans 12 is going to talk about the importance of living out our spiritual gifts to the utmost. And in chapters 13 and 14, Paul is going to talk about uh, obeying proper authorities and committing ourselves fully to loving and sacrificing ourselves for others, especially other believers. Uh, he's calling us, in other words, to active obedience to God's moral laws and to the promptings of his spirit, uh, to the commandments in his word. Uh, so there's definitely a place for works, but it's on the far side of grace. It's on the platform of the free gift of God's grace, and that grace gives us tremendous resources to help us do those good works. What are some of those? Uh, first of all, the, the loss of that paralysis that guilt provides, that guilt creates. The, the fact that I can lay that guilt aside and walk forward without regret for the past, uh, knowing that God has got a great future in store for me. Um, just the Spirit, His Spirit working in us, changes us. Just automatically, through our Bible study and prayer, our, our devotional time, our, our, our worship time, our fellowship with other believers, there are automatic changes that the Spirit works, begins working in us without our having to lift a finger uh, beyond the, those acts of faithfulness. And, and um, one of the ways that the Spirit changes us is renewing our minds. Uh, Romans 8, 5 through 11 makes it clear that our minds are renewed so that in the process of our daily walk with Christ, we automatically start caring about the spiritual priorities that matter to God. Um, however, you're not in the flesh, Paul says in Romans 8, 9, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of, of, Christ, of God dwells in you. Um, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ will also give life to your mortal bodies. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit is changing our minds. Um, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to God, for it is not even able to. Uh, you're not in the flesh, though, but in the Spirit. So our minds are changed. Our priorities are changed. The Spirit of Christ is automatically giving us a new value system, slowly but surely, as we walk with him. In giving ourselves to the Lord, we um, make it possible for him to change us. Further, we have all the privileges. Paul says that we're to be slaves of God and slaves of righteousness, but then, in, back, back earlier in the book, but then he goes further. In, in, in Romans 6, he uses slaves, but in Romans 8, he says, we're not just slaves, we're children. We have all the privileges and motivations that come from being children of God. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 14 through 16. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Just our identity as children of God is inherently motivating. Uh, my children who have gone to Bryan so far have all had high GPAs. Um, I was commenting this morning, Will and Sam and Cliff have all taken freshman English for me, and they all made A's. And a lot of that has to do with their own faithfulness and hard work. But I also think at least a little motivation is added by being a professor's kid. You're supposed to understand college. You're supposed to do well, just like if you're a coach's kid. It would look pretty silly for you to be klutzy out on the basketball court. have no idea what you were doing. Um, just our being kings and queens, princes and princesses in the kingdom of God, knowing that we're one day going to rule with him, that just automatically motivates us to be better. Uh, if we are royalty, we don't need to fight like paupers for crumbs at the world's table. There are some things that are beneath us, and we know it, because we're different. We, we are, we're part of the family of God. We're part of an elite. Why would we do that shameful, stupid stuff that everybody else is doing? Maybe we can help rescue them out of that, but why would we stoop down into that slime? We, we have a new identity. We're part of a new, we're playing a, a higher game according to better rules. Uh, just knowing that, just being reminded of that every day in our walk with Christ uh, gives us a motivation to uh, do those good works that he calls us to. And we're also promised great rewards for our faithfulness. In Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Um, the Stoic had no way of accounting for evil. He had to believe that everything controlled by the Logos was somehow good. We get to say, yeah, it is evil. What's hurting me is a product of the sin in the world, maybe even of the sin in my life. It's not, maybe it's a product of the attack of Satan. It's not inherently a good thing, but God turns it into something good. If I suffer faithfully, I am winning glory in his kingdom through my suffering. Uh, this idea is also affirmed in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, where Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. In Romans 5, Paul brings up a, 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 another motivation that as we suffer faithfully, we are becoming more like Jesus. We're growing in character. We're becoming stronger and more beautiful. We exult in our tribulations, he says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. So when we go through hard times faithfully when we're obedient in hard times. We're winning glory in heaven, and we know that we're growing up. We're becoming better people. We're becoming more like our Savior. That's a significant motivator for good works. 
In fact, the Bible says anything we do faithfully is unto the Lord. We get to see as earning a reward. Uh, Paul says in Romans 16, 19, quote, For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to have the Apostle Paul say, Everybody has heard about your obedience. I am dancing a jig about you and how faithful you are. Uh, God sees our faithfulness that way. Sometimes we think of the reward, the well-done, good, and faithful servant as coming only in heaven, but Jesus says in, in, uh, um, Jesus says in Mark uh, that... that, um, that uh, we receive not only a reward in heaven, I'm looking to see if I can find this verse in my notes, um, but that, um, yeah, Mark uh, 10, 29 through 30, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, I don't think Jesus is speaking completely literally there, but I think he's saying there's great reward in this life as well as in the next. And, and I hope that some of y'all have experienced that feeling on a day when you struggle faithfully through something hard, knowing that Christ is helping you, wanting to please him. I hope that you have that sense of him saying, good job, you the man, you the woman, uh, well done, you have represented me here. Uh, uh, that is so rewarding. That, that idea that, that Christ is approving of us, uh, that other Christians who represent him, people like Paul, can say, I am so impressed by your faithfulness and your obedience. Um, you know, I, all of us need both that grace and that sense of accomplishment that comes from good works. Uh, all of us need to know that God's love is not something we have to earn. It's not something we have to do anything to keep. He loves and forgives us no matter what. All of us need that foundation. But then all of us long to please God, to have God say to us, you have done well. All of us long to achieve something. And on the foundation of God's grace, Romans promises that we can there are all of these resources that grace gives us that helps us achieve God's approval, uh, the Christ-likeness, and the reward that we are, we are, we are told to work for. Uh, so we can have our cake and eat it too. On the foundation of God's grace, we can also do those good works that, that are satisfying, that gives us a sense of accomplishment when we please our Savior. And, and we can experience the blessing of both of those um, in our daily relationship with Christ. It's all about relationship. I remember, I, I didn't vote for Bill Clinton, but I remember him uh, having a campaign slogan that went, it's the economy, stupid. Well, in Romans, Paul is sort of saying, it's relationship, stupid. Relationship with God and other believers. Righteousness never involves an isolated relationship with a bunch of rules so that you can have a sense of being in control and autonomous. Righteousness was always, even before the fall, about giving yourself away to God 
and being in relationship with him. And the righteousness that comes from God's grace allows us to do those good works in the context of that empowering, encouraging relationship. Uh, that's a lot of what I think Paul is saying in Romans. Um, even the Old Testament law was based on faith. He takes a lot of time to argue in Romans 4. It was always about faith, even you Jews who so value the law. The law was always supposed to come from and lead to relationship with God. So God's grace makes possible a relationship that not only gives us great freedom and acceptance and joy, but also empowers obedience. So we get to fight hard, but we get to fight with God's resources at our, at our beck and call every minute. And uh, I think that's a pretty good place to be in. I was going to just share a little bit about how some of this has practically worked out in my own life. Uh, some of y'all know this and some of you don't, but I have a, a mild case of a neuromuscular disease called myasthenia gravis. And about back in 2007, it presented itself with my having major problems swallowing. And that's never good. Uh, there's something major wrong with your neuromuscular system if you're having trouble all, all of a sudden swallowing. Amy and I uh, engaged in some wishful thinking and thought maybe it's just I'm tired, having a rough year, but things would go about halfway down and then I'd have to wash them the rest of the way or I, I couldn't get food down. And uh, that was, so finally I got tested. And um, they did a swallowing, swallowing test where I, they, they photographed barium going down. And uh, I remember that morning because the speech pathologist who was watching and interpreting the test said, oh no, this is terrible. Your epiglottis isn't even closing over your windpipe. There's stuff going down your windpipe every time you swallow. Look, listen, don't eat or drink anything until I consult with a colleague and get back to you later today. And then, and then after I heard those wonderful words, um, I had to get an MRI to see if there was a stroke or MS or signs of MS in my brain. And uh, so I had to sit in this claustrophobic place with noise pounding into my uh, head uh, and think for the next hour and a half about what that guy had said. And then I, um, as I was driving home, this crow defecated right on my windshield, huge right in front of my face. I mean, I'm glad I had some wa washer fluid because I couldn't have even driven, you know. And finally I thought, you know, I think I'm seeing somebody behind the curtain here. I think this isn't just about my, my body's health. I really think this is about, I'm, I'm being tempted to be terrified and to give up my faith in Christ. And um, so when I got home, I did not take the speech pathologist's advice. I took Amy out to, to Hardy's and I got a hamburger and french fries and iced tea. I thought, you know, I've had this condition for several months and I haven't gotten pneumonia yet. So I'm, I'm just not going to yield to this. If, this is, if, if I take this advice, I'm going to take it in fear. It's going it's gonna to encourage me to be just un, unfaithful to God. I'm not trusting. Now I'm not a... Christian scientists, I believe, you take doctor's advice and you consult physicians. And, but, but that particular advice, and later the guy, later in the day, he called me and apologized and said he had overstated his case and he had had a close relative who died from aspiration and he was trying to be really careful with me and 
but uh, but it was it was it was hard. And there was, I gradually came to realize as time went on, obedience for me was walking through that experience without lashing out at my wife and children, not withdrawing, and not living in constant fear. Uh, it it didn't get easier because. Um, when I finally saw a neurologist, he said there are only two things in the world you could have. It could be myasthenia gravis, which is what it turned out to be, or it could be Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and we have no idea which it is. It's got, but it's got to be one of those two. There's nothing else. We've, we've looked at your um, MRI. There's nothing there. That was a little unnerving, but... Uh, 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 <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, there's nothing there. The only two things in the world you could have or ALS or myasthenia gravis. And myasthenia is something that you can control and live with. And of course, ALS is, is, is a slow, hard way to die. And uh, um, they did tests for both of them, and both tests came out negative. And my neurologist cheerfully told me over the phone while I was at work in January that it has to, still has to be one of those two, even though the test came out negative. We just haven't, haven't found it yet. Uh, and one of the things that was a little nerve-wracking was that they started me on the medicine as sort of the gold standard for myasthenia, and it did not touch my symptoms. And, uh, uh, and I was getting ready for a hike uh, in the New Mexico Rockies with my son Will that summer at Philmont Scout Ranch. And uh, probably because of that, because I was trying to do some training, I was getting extra fatigue in my muscles that the myasthenia was exacerbating. But I was um, getting muscle twitches all the time. And muscle twitches are not a uh, typical myasthenia symptom. They're an ALS symptom. And uh, so I would, I, my, my struggle was to stay peaceful during that time. And also it, there was another struggle of obedience, and that was to hear what I believed God was telling me. Every time I prayed about my situation, um, I would get a strong spiritual sense that this is not going to be fatal. We're going to live. And the mornings that I would wake up with the most fear in my gut were the mornings that my daily light devotional had verses about healing and God's protection and, and the life that he gives us. And, and it seemed to me that God was trying to say, you're going to live. But it sure didn't look like it. It looked a lot more like I had ALS. And every time I walked into the hospital, my faith would evaporate. Uh, it was like, I, I could sort of imagine telling the neurologist, God has given me a word that I'm going to live. And just the thought of him thinking, this is why I hate practicing in Tennessee with these holy rollers. <laughs> Now, just the thought of that very bright, well-educated man's skeptical response would just completely daunt me. And um, one day was particularly bad. Uh, I was passing out papers in a class, and one of my thumbs started twitching. And then the other thumb started twitching. And my jaw started twitching. And my faith just evaporated. I just said, you are dead meat, buddy and you're going to die from this. And if you would stop engaging in these Pollyanna wish fantasies that you're calling faith, 
and accept that you're going to die, it would probably be easier for you and your family if you would just face reality. And um, fortunately, the class was real animated, and, uh, and I didn't have to do much to lead the discussion. Uh, but I had another class, and then I came back to my office feeling really down. The um, class that I had, uh, the, the class, as I left class, I said, we're going to study Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem next time, The Windover, which is uh, in which a, a little bird, a little falcon called a kestrel, becomes a symbol of Christ, the beauty and power of Christ entering into our world. I don't know if y'all ever heard of Gerard Manley Hopkins, a really fine 19th century British Christian poet. Um, so as I got to my office, it was interesting. There was a, a journal on my desk that I'd just gotten. It had an interview with a novelist that I'd actually gotten to know 20 years before about the influence of Gerard Manley Hopkins in his work. So I thought, well, that's interesting. But I was still pretty, pretty ragged out emotionally. I was, I was still thinking I've got to face my own death. And then George Pitts called out of the blue. And George and I sometimes talked on the phone in my office, but he had never called me at that time of the day. And he said, just kind of out of the blue, again, can I pray for you? So he prayed for me. And uh, then another person, uh, librarian, came up looking for one of the other people in the English department, didn't find him, stopped by my office, said, how are you doing? Kind of knew that I was struggling with an undiagnosed illness. And I said, well, without going into detail today, not too well. And she said, can I pray for you? And so she, she prayed for me. And, and then I walked downstairs to eat some dinner because I had had a, a hospital appointment that morning for another test, and I'd missed a student appointment that I was going to have after dinner. And when I got to the cafeteria, I thought, I really can't. I can't eat. I'm too worked up. And I was walking down toward the Bryant baseball field, um, and I prayed, Lord, please let me live to watch my children grow up. And, uh, and a kestrel, the, little, the bird that's in Hopkins Pond, the Windhover, flew, flew in my light of vision uh, about 50 yards away and lighted in a tree. And they're really skittish little birds. But you can't. I'm an amateur bird watcher, and uh, I've tried to stop and see them on telephone lines and back the car up, and they always fly off. But this one flew out of the tree and descended from 50 to 15 feet and flew right over my head, so close I could see the breast feathers. And I just, I felt like, Lord, if I stand here any longer, it'll probably be doing loop-de-loops. You are really going out of your way to let me know today that you are with me to keep me from being afraid. And I guess... All through that year that I was undiagnosed, I, I over and over again felt God in his grace giving me the power to put fear aside and to treat my wife and my children well and to teach well and to be faithful to him in the way I walked through that hard time. And I've seen that in little things, in little things, when the car breaks down, when that... that I, if I turn to him in that moment, he gives me the power to see it as a spiritual issue, not a physical issue primarily, not a mechanical issue primarily, but a chance to honor him by the way I speak and the way I act. 
And all these resources are at my disposal to help me be faithful in those hard moments. And, and, and my daughter's testimony involves the reassurance that I gave her during that time I had ALS. And, and the way I was kind and patient when our transmission went out and we were 250 miles from home. And I have just seen over and over again these spiritual fruits and blessings and rewards come from a faithfulness that I have exerted that I can feel proud of, but that was empowered and made possible by my standing on the foundation of God's grace and the tremendous resources that it provided for me. So I, I'll stop. That's, that's what I wanted to cover. But I wanted to say after the, after the song and the benediction, uh, I and, and Roger Thomas and, and uh, Tracy Gartman are going to be up here. If there's anybody who would just like to pray about accessing God's grace, experiencing it more fully, or living faithfully as a result of, of our relationship with God. If you're struggling with faithfulness or with really receiving God's grace uh, in any area of your life, we would be glad to, to pray for you. I'm not planning for anybody to come up during the hymn or anything. This is not a, an invitation, but we're just going to be here right after the benediction if, if anybody wants prayer about this issue. Um, I don't think the truth that we profess is powerful until it's lived, and we can't live it except our, without accepting the wonderful grace that we experience in our ongoing relationship with Christ. And every day we're trying to figure out more and more, hopefully, what that looks like and how we access Christ's power at the same time that we exert ourselves and we throw ourselves into the game to be faithful. Uh, there are tremendous rewards of understanding that process and living it out better and better. All right. God bless you.